We're doing a crazy thing. We're going through six chapters of Ephesians and six Sundays, but we're not doing a chapter a Sunday. It doesn't work that way. And we said Ephesians, because we're surveying the Christian life of Paul, Ephesians breaks into two really big pieces. Do you remember? Remember the big pieces of Ephesians? Chapters one through three is the privileges of the church, the body of Christ, which doctrinally is the theme, the body of Christ, the church is the, is the theme of Ephesians. That doesn't mean the local church. It's talking about the universal body of Christ. And chapters four through six, if we have privileges in one through three, then four through six is the practices of the local church. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, of the body of Christ, the practices of the universal church. And so in a way, it's all believers. I mean, because that's what the church is, all believers, all who are united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's the defining feature is you have to have the Holy Spirit present and he has to be uniting us, baptizing us into Christ. And that makes the church, the, the, the assembly of those who are in Christ. And that's that language in Christ. That's what the church is. And it's a great privilege to be that. And you wouldn't know that. And I wouldn't know that if we didn't have Ephesians. And the reason we wouldn't is because it's a mystery. It wasn't revealed before. And that's what we're talking about today is the mystery that is the church. And we looked last week at chapter two, and uh, we have been, again, not one chapter a week, but in chapter two, we really, I believe, dealt sufficiently for our survey with verses one through 16. And we sort of ran out of time for verses 17 through 22. But this is where the doctrine of the church really starts to take off the doctrine, the teaching of the Apostle Paul given by the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would understand what the church is, what the church is. Let's talk about that topic just for a second, just so everyone understands. I love this OMH. I love this old meeting house. This is the coolest place in the world. Don't worry about the camera for just a second, Joel. One of these is the thing. Music leaders. This, this is just a cool thing. I like to bring this out every once in a while. I can't read it because my eyes can't do it anymore, but this is one of these documents that's the original documents of our church. And I just thank God for whoever put this together. Um, the date is 1821, publication from, anyway. So, so this is one of our original documents that someone wrote by hand. I mean. We're celebrating 1776 and the document that founded our country, you know, the, the, the spiritual ethical force behind our constitution, I think is our declaration. But I mean, this kind of thing is, is uh, let's say this was taking up a subscription for a music leader. One of these does that, or maybe for the building or maybe for the ox team to pick the building up and move it around. Don't know how they did it, but they did it. They, they rotated the building uh, 90 degrees and I think... 1836 or something. Built, they started breaking ground in 1812. And um, yeah, I know there was a war on, but we were fighting the devil up here. And, and so they started this little Baptist church, first Baptist church of Preston, called it Preston City Baptist Church. But we, we are a, a, an assembly of believers, a local assembly. And most of the New Testament um, doctrine on ecclesiology or church, ecclesia, the doctrine of the ecclesia of the assembly, most of it deals with practical matters in the group, in the community where you are. And you could apply everything in Ephesians 3, and in fact, we must in 2 and 3, to this local assembly. But Paul, in 
Ephesians is not talking about a local assembly. He's talking to a local assembly, and I think to the churches in Asia Minor. I think they're all supposed to read each other's letters because of how he concludes Colossians. But we're talking to Laodicea, we're talking to Smyrna, we're talking to the churches that John will write to. Actually, the Lord sends letters through John to in Revelation 2 and 3. Now that's, that's what's happening is a local assembly or several local assemblies are receiving revelation from God through the Apostle Paul about what it is to be in Christ and therefore part of his body, the capital C Church. And so there are, two doc, there are two sides to the doctrine of the church in the New Testament. There really are. There's how you conduct yourself in the local assembly, which is a very strong emphasis in the Baptistic movement, begun in about 16, I forget, 1611 or something by John Smythe when he baptized himself. That's where the, that's where the, the modern Baptist movement comes from. I know it's not popular among fundamentalist landmark Baptist to say that, but it's just true. They want to say, no, it's John the Baptist and the only Christians were Baptists. I'm sorry, they don't really say it that strongly, but the point is this Baptistic movement that said local assembly, not hierarchical structure, Roman Catholic or Episcopal, that's Baptistic. It's also Congregationalist. And the difference between Congregationalist and Baptist is baptism. Baptist baptized believers, Congregationalist baptized babies unbelievers. That's, that's the thing. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is you come, you come from somewhere. We have arrived somewhere doctrinally through tradition, through the teaching of the Bible for generations. Baptists say no creed, but the Bible, our tradition is in the apostolic testimony built on the prophets of the old Testament. That's our creed. I like that. I like that. I like theology too. I like theologians. I like what they say. And I like the doctrinal statements that are accurate within the creeds, but I don't have to sign off on all the errors that any, anyone says or any errors because I've got inerrant scriptures, not inerrant creeds because that's the problem is revelation is under the apostles. It's through the apostles and prophets and what theologians, I'm even trying to be one. Theologians like me, maybe you're trying to be a theologian and learn to think categorically about what the Bible requires. Your, your ideas of mine are not in, inspired or inerrant, but what Paul says is, now we're far afield, but I just want you to understand this biblical doctrine of the church has a universal component, which means everyone who's in Christ. So you're part of the church with a capital C, but it also has the local expression of that universal body called the local church. And that's what Baptistic, the Baptists have traditionally insisted on when they have assembled. They've said there is such a thing as the local church. Let me give you an example of this. My favorite example is actually pretty startling. It's 1 Corinthians chapter five. The apostle Paul, a member of the universal church tells the Corinthian church that he is one of their number. And so he's, Paul's like a member, if you will, of every local church. And he says, I'm not present, but if I was, I would have already cast this man, this sinner out. Now that's controversial. And I don't want to debate the doctrine there. Pretty, to me, it's pretty straightforward. Lifestyle, sexual sin, denies the gospel, can't have it as part of your witness. So you separate. Sorry, you just do, you separate. But what I want to point out is that Paul says, you Corinthians have something that's in and you can have somebody that's not, that, that is in, but he has to go out. 
And what that means is that there's a boundary, there's a, there's a circle you could draw around where we're in or out. And we're not being legalists, it just is that way. And that's the kind of reasoning that you have to do by observing the scriptures to find the local church, is that there's an in and there's an out. Now, see, that's not the way your tradition says. Tradition says we go on Sunday, we give 10%, we do, the, and we, we do these things, this is what we do, we're, we're Baptists, or, or we're, this is our tradition, or whatever it is that you say. I keep saying Baptists, and some of you are like, this isn't a Baptist church, this is a Bible church. Well, in my opinion, historically, the Baptists just got their name wrong. I really believe this. I think that the Lord Jesus is telling us to baptize believers, not babies. Every baptism in the Bible, water baptism, is of a believer. Believe and then be baptized is the, is the sequence. And the baptism doesn't save you. I'm just saying historic Baptist dogma. The water doesn't save you, but it is a declaration in obedience to Jesus that you are saved. I mean, this is, this is what we've always believed. When you find people say, no, the water does save you, that's not a traditionally Baptist view. I'm not, I have no brief for the Baptists. They won't have me. I love them. But I'm just saying, biblically, biblically, local church is Baptistic. And so this, is, this will also offend a lot of Baptists. As I say, well, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. You don't need to wave a Baptist flag and say, that's us. You need to baptize believers. You need to say the Bible is the inspired word of God. And it's our authority because we're under the apostles and prophets. So my little introduction on the church versus the local church. Here's one of the errors that I've seen in some traditional Baptist tendency that I think is to overemphasize the local church and to forget about the biblical doctrine that Paul is teaching of the church, the universal church. What's the other error is to say, well, what we have to do is find the hierarchical structure that is visible on earth of the universal church. After all, that's what Catholic means. Catholic is just another word for universal, the universal church. And so in reaction to the errors that we started to deal with in the Reformation, some have said, well, don't even go there. Don't even talk about the universal church. No, we don't have a hierarchical order building a, 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 an administrative state over all local churches. That's not God's design. We all have a great shepherd though, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have no one under him over the rest of the churches except the apostles. And they're gone. We have their word, we have their writings. So we're apostolic. And that's about as close as you're gonna to get to the hierarchical structure. In other words, the Baptists are right. It's in terms of governance, the local assembly. And I'm absolutely uh, lockstep with them and the congregationalists on we are an independent body. There's no hierarchical authority over us except Jesus Christ. And then what he delegated to the apostles and we submit to the word. And so we do what we do biblically. That's, that's ecclesiology. Okay. People have added some interesting things. They've said, well, if you have one Jesus, then you've got to have one shepherd that represents Jesus in the local assembly. I believe this is in part an undoing of the Reformation. The Reformation went and found Jesus as the head of the church and said it can't be this apostolic descendant, the vicar. It, it can't be the pope. The pastor of any church, the bishop of Rome just means pastor. 
can't be the one pastor of that church. To do that is to undo the Reformation. And the big insight that we got is that Jesus Christ is, is the, the head of the church. And we are priests, as we read in uh, Hebrews 9 and 10, we're priests in a new order, a new priesthood with Jesus as the high priest. We're a kingdom of priests. All of you are believer priests. And they, they discover the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Of course, I love theology. This is what happens when you get me started talking about theology. As you have these two doctrines that are part of the same ecclesiology, the local church and the universal church, and how they interface is kind of been missed along the way by various groups. Let's go, go over it one more time. I'm just going to help you really quickly. If you're in Christ, then whether you're part of a local church or not, you're in the body of Christ, the church. But that body of Christ has a visible expression in local assemblies that are under the apostles and prophets because we're under Jesus who delegated that to them. And we have offices and we have the function of spiritual gifts. All of you have a spiritual gift. That's Ephesians 4. And the gifts are given so that we'll build the body of Christ. And really God does it through us. And this is local church ecclesiology. In every case, when I've been told, this is why you have the doctrine of the single pastor as the vicar, the, like the local pope under Christ and, you know, and the apostles. And then you have this pastor who's then the mediator for you. Every time I've been taught this doctrine with a biblical passage, I believe it has co-opted something that the passage isn't talking about. I think there are exegetical efforts to make this doctrine work. But I don't think they pan out like, like angels in Revelation 2 and 3 are, are angels. They're not pastors. We are no angels. But we are messengers. Um, my sheep hear my voice in John 10 is Jesus talking. So that means that if I hear my pastor teach, then I've, I no. That means that Jesus, when you hear the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles and prophets, through his word, then you are hearing your savior and you're growing under this undoes the Bible. When you say I'm the pastor so you can hear me teach. Here's what happened. Here's an interesting thing. We match patterns. We believers, we match patterns. All of us do. I saw three things. Is that a reference to the Trinity? Get that a lot. Um, there was bread over here and a cup way over here. Is this somehow referring back to the, you know, forward to the, to the communion? We like to match patterns because the Bible is foretelling all that God's going to do through the Old Testament. Well, here's a pattern that happened. I love this pattern. Lewis Berry Schaefer, Dallas Seminary founder, my favorite um, theologian in the English language. For, for reasons I'll tell you some other time, but very helpful theologian. I don't agree with everything he said, but I do teach at the seminary we've named after him. Lewis Berry Schaefer. Grew up under his dad, who was a, like a, an elder and pastor in a Presbyterian church. And his dad died when I think he was 12. Chafer then went to um, uh, the early 20th century Elmer Gantry circuit. He went on as a singer for an evangelist. Like think of Beverly Shea and Billy Graham kind of thing. But in a small way. So put up a tent in every little town. And, and use all, not Billy Graham, I'm not criticizing him, but, but in this era, there was all these psychological techniques people would use. Like you have to walk the aisle. And if you don't walk the aisle, well, I mean, well, you're not one of the group. So, the, you know, this group psychology to get people to make a decision and commit. And Schaefer 
did that as a young man, having studied music at Oberlin College. And um, wrote a book about it called True Evangelism, where he says all that psychological stuff is garbage. This is a spiritual work of God. And what we need to do is pray for these unbelievers instead of try to psychologically manipulate them. But Chafer studied and listened and heard thousands of sermons and thousands of sermons and thousands of sermons. And then he heard C.I. Schofield teach one time. And he said, I'm hearing the Bible taught. He didn't quite say it that way. But he reported later, probably 50 years later, that was a crisis moment in my life. A crisis moment where I knew more about God. I knew God better than I ever had by an order of magnitude, if you will. I knew the living God like I never had before. And I had someone that taught it where I understood it. And he had that experience and it's a beautiful thing. Have you had that experience? I hope you have had that experience where you've been taught the word and said, I am knowing God because that's what we're here for. Pardon the long story, but he had this crisis moment. Others have heard a pastor teach in a world of pastors preaching and telling stories like I'm doing now. They hear the Bible taught and they say, stability, solid ground. And they say, it's him. It's that pastor. And they have their crisis moment. And then from then on, it's whatever he says. Did Schofield get everything right? No, no. He got a lot right. He's under a lot of uh, attack today. I think this is the way people treated John Nelson Darby because he was teaching the Bible. The, The common denominator is that the sheep are hearing the voice of our Savior. And it's not about the sheepdog that's delivering the goods. It's about the goods he's delivering. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ teaching us as our great shepherd. And so, but what happens is I hear, I have this experience in, in church where I'm actually learning something being taught. And then I, I pattern match and say, well, that's my sheep hear my voice. And we forget that it's really about Jesus. Well, the best we can say is that there is an elder working hard at preaching and teaching. He's worthy of honor, double honor. There is somebody that is doing what Jesus told Peter to do. Feed my sheep. That's the most you can say about any human. And I mean, not the God man, any Bible teacher. Is he's doing his job. And so when people are not having this experience of enlightenment, of the eyes of their hearts opening to the word, this means that somebody, the teacher or the student, we're not doing our job. And the answer isn't, well, it's got to be this right man. It's that God has a philosophy of ministry and we need to get with it. And the philosophy of ministry is this. God's word is special revelation from you, for you, that it's spiritually, supernaturally appraised and understood and appreciated. And it transforms you inside and makes you think more like your savior. And it's a supernatural transaction. And God, the Holy Spirit has to be in you to bring this about. And you are being characterized. You are being made more and more in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ through this transaction. And there's no other way. There is nothing but God's word that facilitates this process. It isn't soup kitchen time. It isn't feeding the poor. It isn't the things that we do because we're being transformed. It's the supernatural transaction 
of maturation through the word of God that equips you to serve. And I believe you have to serve or you don't grow because you don't really believe what you're being taught. And I don't mean serve in the soup kitchen. I mean, that may be one way. There's no other way. This is the radical and, and, and vital philosophy of ministry that I think the apostle is delivering. Let me, let me, can I prove it to you? Let me prove it to you that it's like this, that you have to dig, that you have to do the hard spade work of studying out what God said because it's at a certain depth and he wants you to sink to that depth. Every one of you supernaturally empowered by God, the spirit to get what he's saying. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 57 when he says, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have our, our access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. What God wants you to do with that is understand every word, every participial relationship between the participle and the main, the main verb. He wants you to get all the intentional meaning Paul has behind the prepositional phrases he uses, but he doesn't need you to know those grammatical terms, but he wants you to understand what we just read. And it, here's the thing. It's not a God's working in us. That's not what that did, what he just said. But that's what we'll do with it. So let's look at Ephesians 2 and beginning of verse 17. And we'll put the whole paragraph together. He says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. A quote of Isaiah 57 and a reference here to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and preached peace. So that through him we would have the access. This is what we read about in Hebrews chapter 10 and 9 and 10, we've, we are allowed into the presence of a holy and righteous God, God the Father he's talking about. Through Jesus Christ, we would have the access that's to the Father, both groups in one spirit to the Father. This is why Paul says he came and preached peace, the doctrine of reconciliation. So then no longer are you strangers and foreigners Gentiles and separated from Israel, the people of God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord and whom even you are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. This is my translation. And it's still a big bite. It's still a lot to chew on. How will we get to the nugget? How are you going to get the nutritional, spiritual, nutritional value God wants you to have from that, from those words? Well, one way I've seen is to take each word out of its context and find out what it can mean and then spiritually manipulate it to mean something that Paul doesn't mean by it. Just completely separate Paul from what he says. I got a better idea. Let's actually use God's institution of language. When God speaks, things happen, Genesis one. 
Let's use God's creation, God's way of communicating meaning through language and follow the thought in actual main verbs and see what the themes are that fall out. And when you do that, it's real clear what's happening here. He came and preached, main verb. I know it's a quote from the Old Testament, but, in, but Paul writes it in Greek, so we'll use the Greek sentence. He came and preached peace to you who are far off. That's the Gentiles and those who are near, that's Israel. Jesus came and preached. He's doing it right now through Paul. As we preach what Paul is saying, he's doing it through us. But that's the message. That's what the church does. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near. And the reason he did it, this is so helpful, is a so that. The reason Jesus came with this message of reconciliation for Jews and Gentiles is so that through Jesus, we would have the access. The peace that's being preached, the gospel, is so that we can come to God the Father. That's the biggest point, is that we have access. And here's an interesting thing, all of us in one new man, Jew and Gentile. That's the doctrine of the church, Jew and Gentile. Both groups in one, that's Jews and Gentiles in one spirit. I believe it's the Holy Spirit to the Father. It's a Trinitarian passage. Jesus' mission of preaching the gospel and accomplishing it at the cross. But this gospel ministry of Jesus is so that in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say how, but in the, in, in the spirit of, of God, we have access to God the Father. This is why my prayers always start with dear heavenly Father, I always seek to be filled by the Spirit in my prayers, and I am praying in the name of the Son. There it is. We have, through Jesus, access to the Father in the Spirit. This is access through the message of reconciliation. That's the topic that he's teaching here. And this is why he came, and that's awesome. And he added a little bit to more than just we have access, both groups have access. Because that's the doctrine he's introducing, the doctrine of the church. This mystery that the Gentiles have been brought in with believing Israel to become this new organization called Ecclesia. See, there's, it's like a Venn diagram. You've got Israel. And inside Israel, there's a remnant, the believers, the actual believers. The people that received Christ when he came. Like Matthew, the tax collector. Like Zacchaeus. We read about this in the Gospels. That's, that's remnant of Israel. And then you have the Gentiles. And now you have a Venn diagram where there's a, an overlap between Jew and Gentile and it's believer. And that, in, that overlap is the church. And that's what he's talking about. Both groups now have access to the Father. Now, it, when you talk about the access, go back to the temple system, to the Levitical cult system in Israel. Are you used to that word as a technical cult? Doesn't mean bad. It means ritual worship. The system of ritual worship in Israel, there was a priest, there was a hierarchical structure of priesthood where one guy could go once a year on the day of atonement into the presence of God and Jesus has torn down the veil and he's brought us in as priests. And there was no way you and I could do that without the blood of Christ. And here it is, we have access. New order, new arrangement. This is not the old way. So that through him, we would have access, both groups and one spirit to the father. So then, watch your logical connectors. So then, so what do we do? What, so what, are, what is your next point in your topic? So then, no longer are you Gentiles, strangers and foreigners. 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. The topic is now God's household. But he's saying you have a new set. You have a new identity, a new, a new center point. Because you've been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the, the cornerstone. Now my colors, I, I'm tracing this theme of no longer being strangers and aliens because it's the main verbal structure. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're God's household. Fellow members, fellow citizens of the saints and members of God's household. And this again is the doctrine that we're seeing Paul develop, that we're labeling the doctrine of the church, God's household. And the, what makes you God's household is the participle, because you've been built. There's a sense where you're being built, we'll read on down in verse 22, but there's also a sense where you're, you've been built and it's in the perfect. Upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, the doctrine that Paul is teaching here is new identity and belonging. You used to consider yourself, and he said it before, you, they called you the circumcision, by the, they called you the uncircumcision, those who are called the circumcision with, with, with hands, made by hand. See, this division between the two groups is the point Paul's making in context. And he's saying, you have a new identity and a new belonging that you're not of the Gentiles now. Primarily, you're of Christ and therefore of his body along with the believing Jews. And so it's this new thing, new identity and belonging. And then I highlighted Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone because Paul will often end a thought on Jesus and then the next thought is just a reminder of who he is and how he relates. Every paragraph of Paul is Christology. He's got some doctrine about the Lord Jesus. And here, there are some interesting propositions he gives us about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in Jesus, the whole building, see, household, that word household is built on the word oikos. And it means house, but it's a play on words, house we get it in Second Samuel 7. David said, Lord, I'm going to build you a, a house, a temple. And Jesus said, or God said, no, um, I'm going to build you a dynasty, a house, a dynasty, the house of David. And that, that's, that's very clear in the Old Testament. Paul's doing it here. We're his household, we're his family, his, the people in his house, dynasty, family, whatever, organization. Now he's using the language to illustrate a building project of a house. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I don't think that's about physical structures, right? That's about a household. And so this is a common uh, paranomasia, a common pun in uh, the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. You're God's household here and the whole building in Christ in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing. Main verb, the whole building is growing. I believe it's Oxano, Oxano. You're growing. Okay, but he doesn't, take, he doesn't personalize it yet. He says the whole building, this household, Jew and Gentile, one new body is growing into a holy temple. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter six, you, your body is not to be joined sexually with prostitutes, Corinthians, because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. How you, people try to make that a corporate body. I mean, the, the, all the believers together in Corinth make the body. He's not talking about all the believers together going to one prostitute. He's talking about 
you men stop doing that temple of Aphrodite thing and saying, well, you know, I serve God with my spirit and, and my, my appetites with my body. No, you, the whole person is God's. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense where it's true for your individual person. But here he's talking about the whole body being built into a temple in the Lord, a holy temple. And then he further says, because this is Paul's thought, as you're walking through his thought, he's saying, in Jesus is the way this whole construction thing is happening. It's in him that it's growing. That's position in Christ's language, by the way, in Christ. In Christ, this is growing. And then in whom even you, and that's why I've translated not also you, but even you, a sense of use, you are being built together. Even you, he personalizes it in verse 22. You're being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit, a dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit. What are we gonna do with all this? Well, our position in Christ, the in whom, in Christ, in Christ, is it means our participation, our growth, and our function within the universal body of Christ in the church. Your position in Christ doesn't just mean that I have a new identity. It means I'm growing and we'll hear later being fitted together and joined uh, into this living structure. That's participation. That's not just, I got a card that says I'm, I'm a member. You actually have to, you're responsible, I should say, to be part of this thing. See, I, I think that, see, American Christendom has missed the church big time by saying, well, if you're a believer, then you, you're set. Well, what do you mean by set? Final deliverance from the lake of fire? Yeah, that's true. If you have Christ, you have the life. But most of the New Testament, in, in fact, I believe all of the New Testament is written to encourage us to walk the walk. It's written to Christians that we do it, that we do what Jesus is requiring of us. That's to walk by the spirit and not walk in a functional death in Romans chapter eight. So we have a new identity and belonging, but that new identity belonging to the body of Christ is so that we'll grow. So we'll be part of this project that God is building. What's the application? Well, one big one is that you and I should think more about our position in Christ in terms of being part of his body than we probably do. And we should think more about what we're doing in our lives regarding the universal body of Christ than we probably do. And I would tie this into the Great Commission. This is how the church is built. And I mean, new believers are added to the universal body of Christ. This is why we're on mission in part. Because God has a building, he has a construction project he's doing. Now this is a far cry in my view from the church growth movement, which says, if the Holy Spirit's in it, then we're getting more people daily. That doesn't really work in terms of just looking at numbers. America, I'll footnote American Christendom circa 2020. It doesn't work. So some say, well, you haven't got a correct gospel. The gospel is you do works to be saved. And, and you're, you're telling people to just believe. So since you didn't give them works to do, then they're not really saved. Okay, that, no, that's a false gospel. That's why the book of Galatians was written. There is no work you do. It's the work Jesus did. We haven't gotten the gospel wrong when we say it's only your faith in Christ and only Christ's grace and God's work that saves you. Okay, and what you have to do is believe in Christ. What about, no, there's nothing else. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. We didn't get the gospel wrong. We got the church wrong. We don't understand what it is. We don't understand that this is the center. This is the center. 
And I believe the universal church is what he's talking about and the way it's expressed, the way we are by protocol, by God's design, building within it or part of this exercise is the local expression, the local church. So I have an application here. And it is that the local church is more central to us than we think, no matter how central we think it is. Go to church, listen, get up, leave, repeat is not what Paul is talking about. I did say the protocol way that God wants us to grow is his word. But there is a consequence. Go to church. What does that even mean? Assemble with your body, with the body of believers for edification, not for some sort of emotional ecstatics, but for the edification with all the peace and joy that come along with that edification by God's grace. Go and assemble with God's people and grow thereby as you take in the word, as you trust God in what he said, and then as you do it, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I've loved you, just as I've loved you that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He's talking to Christians there. That's the upper room discourse. It's the seed that the rest of the New Testament grows out of. Church age doctrine. This is our new law, the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens so fulfill the law of Christ. How do you show up to study leave and repeat and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular in this room. I'm just saying if that's the way we think about church or the, or the spiritual life, we've missed the, the word. And by the way, David Rosalind hit a major turning point in his life through the ministry of the apostle Paul in Galatians chapter six and verse two. When I first came here, I started teaching Galatians. It's Paul's first letter. Boy, that was a lot of time in Galatians. Verse two of chapter six, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, what is the law of Christ? Conjecturists will say, oh, it's the Old Testament. It's the Mosaic law. I think, no, we have a preceptor and we have a new precept. And the command in John 13, 34, which is central to my understanding of New Testament theology The command Jesus gives is impossible without the Holy Spirit living in you, producing it through you. This is not what God told Israel. Love your neighbor as yourself is great, but it is not love one another as I've loved you on the cross all the way. He loved his own to the end. See, I need the Holy Spirit. I need infinite power for me to be able to produce infinite love. Love as I've loved you. Is anybody here that good a lover? Anybody self-sacrificial like that? not in ourselves, but in God, the Holy Spirit. Well, I think you have the spirit of God in you for a purpose and it's a high purpose. It's, it's, a, it's high energy. You've got this, not so that you have some sort of crazy Holy Ghost ecstatic utterance or something that's not even biblical. It's so that you are able to do what Jesus has commanded you, which is big. And so bear one another's burdens. And so love one another as I've loved you fulfill the law of Christ, bear one another's burdens. How do you do that? If you don't know, engage with concern yourself, care about one another. If you are the kind of person that has two settings on the switch care, don't care. If you're like that, me too. I really struggle with the, with levels of care. I have trouble with, I kind of care really care, totally care. I pretty much do or don't. I'm, that's my weakness I'm, I'm speaking of. 
That's really bad. Because it means that you're sprinting or you're resting. You're not plugging along. But I believe that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can actually love as Christ loves in every instance. It's a disregard of self. You know, not what I get from this, but what I am equipped to give. And now we're going to talk about spiritual giving in the church. No, no, we're talking about a a life of worship where our watchword is love. Two places, love is part of the armor, the way Paul describes armor. 1 Thessalonians 3 and Ephesians 6. It is our identifiable coat of arms. God's agape love expressed in the great commission for the unbeliever by an evangelism process ending in baptism expressed toward the believer in the great commission by teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. This is the greatest expression of love for any type of human, an unbeliever or a believer really is a nice package. If you think about it, but Jesus came and preached peace so that we would have access to the father And so that means we have a new identity. We're no longer strangers and foreigners, but we're God's household. And this household is in Christ and Jesus is building it. It's growing in Christ into this holy temple. And you, even you Ephesians, even you Prestonians or wherever you, whatever near Berg, nearby little zip code you live in, far, far away, Rhode Island. You folks up north of Pittsburgh, out in Tucson, wherever you find yourself, what you're doing, okay, is applying in verse 22, that building project to yourself. Even you are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. And it's still a dual sense. There's a sense where we together are this dwelling place. There's a sense where individually you're the residents. And we'll, I'll show you how that's both true. And this is the problem of theologians is they summarize. They just, oh, dwelling of God. It's either, it can either be the individual or it can only be the group. It can't be both. But the Bible says it's both. So let it be both. Well, that would be too complicated. Well, that's really not my judgment. That's God's, that's God's call. That's about as complicated as he made it. Let's take a little bit of time and talk about the reconciliation access, identity, and growth. Five things I want to summarize from verses 17 through 22. The reconciliation which Jesus bought for us at the cross is conveyed to us through his preaching the gospel message. That's verse 17. The reconciliation Jesus bought for us at the cross is conveyed to us through his preaching. Second, the Lord Jesus presented his message to us so that we would have access to the Father through the Spirit. Absolutely, there's no question. That's what Paul is definitely saying. And so third, the result is our sense of self-identity. We belong to the body of Christ. You're like, yeah, 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 I get this is This is central to who and what you are. If you don't think of yourself as this, if I don't think of myself as this, I need to recalibrate. Self-identity. Fourth, our edification, our construction as God's house is founded on God's word and God's son. The apostles and prophets is a reference to the word and the son, the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being built. Our edification is founded on God's word and God's son. And fifth, our spiritual growth, this growing of the, of the body is intricately connected, intricately connected to the spiritual growth of the whole body of Christ. 
Every cell in your body has uh, instructions. It's got its DNA. Let me let's zoom in a little bit. Every protein in every cell of your body has a, has a role. This, this little church is a cell in the body of Christ, if you will. And we're all little proteins in the cell, to use a biological illustration. And every protein has a role. Every, it's got a shape, a design that it fits together with other proteins to do what it's supposed to do. We've all learned that lately, if we've been paying attention at all to the viral situation. The idea that because I, as an individual protein, have my role means that I'm on my own is absurd. Without the other proteins, me doing my job is irrelevant. My job is to spin this way. I, I just keep spinning this way. Well, if the rest of the proteins don't do their job, the cell doesn't build and multiply and do all it's supposed to do. See, that's the way this works. Your growth is intricately connected to the growth of the body of Christ. Let me give you one final example. and We'll turn it over to the Lord's table. The last example I'll paint, I'll, I'll pr provide of this is this. You were given at the new birth, according to chapter seven and verse four, we'll get to next Sunday, Lord willing. You're given at the new birth, a spiritual gift, at least one. I believe everybody gets one. Some people have multiple ones. How do I know Paul? We know Paul has multiple gifts. He says so. But let's say that you've been given a spiritual gift. That makes you this protein that you are. And you grow spiritually into the expression of that gift. What if other people's spiritual growth depends on your being a mature expression of that giftedness? What if other people need to grow because you are a help person, a helps person. And if they don't get the help that they need, they don't get into the word like they need to and thereby grow. What if you're a teacher and you don't grow spiritually enough to teach? Then the people that need to be taught by you so that they can grow spiritually to do what they're supposed to be, they don't get it. And, and I know God's in control and he's sovereign. He could work around our failures. Obviously, all of us are here as a living testimony to this. But the design he has for your life is that you fit into this structure. So you've got to grow spiritually so that others grow spiritually. And it's impossible for us to perceive how. We're threads in the fabric. We don't understand how we're being used, but we are. And that's what he's saying. This puts a little bit of life to something that would otherwise, it can be academic. It's not just academic. There's academics involved. This is life. This is the spiritual life and it's going to hurt. The most painful thing in all the world is other people. I'm sorry. The second most painful thing in all the world is other people. What's the first most? Us, we hurt ourselves. People will hurt you. If you don't avoid pain, then don't be part of the body of Christ. Don't live. One over hurt. Well, that's an encouragement. Speaking of pain, let's switch over to the Lord's table. It is the most solemn phase of our worship as believers in Christ. Let's mute that out. If I could have the deacons forward, they're going to help me serve this morning. 